0: Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. It was getting a bit chilly. The night was starting to take hold. He's out of breath. He's tired. It had been a long day. He was trying to put some miles between him and his older brother. He was in a hurry to leave. He'd forgotten his pillow at home. And why was he in such a hurry? Well, you'd be in a hurry too if your older brother was trying to kill you. And it's It's not your typical sibling rivalry. It's not like how your kids at home say, I want to kill you. He meant it. He'd been stewing on it for quite some time. And it's funny I'd use the word stew because that's how this whole thing started. His brother came home famished. And he had made up some stew. And he was so hungry, so starving, so ravenous, that he gave away his birthright to his younger brother for a pot of stew. He didn't really think much of it at the time. And later on, his father knew that his life was coming to an end, that he would be joining his father's in death. And he wanted to bless his older son. He wanted to pass along the inheritance and all the blessings And so he called his older son, his name was Esau. He was a man's man. He liked to hunt, fish. He smelled of the outdoors. And he called his son in. He was a hairy man. He was red. That's what Esau means. And he said, boy, I want to bless you before I die. But I want to eat some of your game before I go, before I bless you. Would you go catch some game, come back, fix me a meal, and at that time I'll give you a blessing. Well, unfortunately, as we see often in the world and as we see often in scriptures, the parents had favorites. Esau was dad's favorite and Jacob was mom's. And mom was listening in on this conversation, and mom knew that God's promises were supposed to come through Jacob, so she thought she'd help God out. So she told Jacob, what I want you to do is kill a lamb, I will fix it up into your dad's favorite meal, and I want you to go in and give it to your dad, because he's about to bless your brother, and I want him to bless you instead. Well, mom, how am I going to pull this off? I've got soft skin, and I'm not hairy like my brother. And I talk funny. (laughs) I don't know how he talked. We don't have video or audio from the incident. She's like, don't worry about it. Your brother is so stinking hairy. What we'll do is we will put the skin of the, actually it was a goat on your arms. That's a hairy dude. And when your dad touches you, make sure he touches the goat skin. And you'll dress up in some of your brother's clothes because you smell... Kind of like Macy's, like you've been shopping with the ladies. Spent a little too much time at the perfume counter, and you need to put your brother's clothing on. It smells like campfires and wild game and the outdoors. And so he got his brother's clothes on. They put the goatskin on him. He went in with the pot of stew, and Dad ate. And he was skeptical. He was he was cynical. He wasn't sure to believe it, but he couldn't see well. And he said, you smell like Esau. It tastes like something Esau would make. Your skin feels like Esau's, but you sound like Jacob. No, dad, I'm Esau. And he went through with the ruse, and his dad blessed him. And just as he was leaving the tent, Esau came in. And dad was full. And he had prepared game. And at that moment, Esau realized that his brother Jacob had deceived dad and taken the inheritance for himself. That's why he wanted to kill him. He was so bent on killing him that he would actually, the Bible tells us in Genesis 28, that he would comfort himself with the thought of killing him. And his mother, Jacob, and Esau's mom heard this. And being mommy and believing that Jacob was the nicer of the two, she told Jacob, and she said, flee for your life. Run to Haran, to my brother's house. Haran is in modern-day Turkey. It's quite a ways north and east of Israel. They were living in Beersheba when this happened. And the place where we want to encounter Jacob, he had made his way from Beersheba up to the north of Israel to a place called Luz. He was worn out. He was tired. He'd forgotten his pillow. (laughs) So the Bible tells us he took a rock, stone for a pillow. You know your life's bad when you're using a rock for a pillow. You know, things aren't going well when you're running for your life from your brother, and all you have to sleep is a pillow, is a stone. And he lies down. And at that moment, he dreams a dream. It was really a vision. He has this experience where he sees the heavens open up. And there's a song that came out of this Led Zeppelin was there, and he wrote this song. Called it stairway to heaven. In your Bible, it probably says Jacob's ladder. It's not a good way to understand it. It's not a ladder. It's not like those flimsy things you lean against the house while you're precariously putting your Christmas decorations up. It, it, it's not one of those. It was a rampart. It was it was a causeway. It was it was something that armies would use to to be able to forge a river. It was a huge ramp. And this ramp extended from earth to the heavens. And on this ramp was an army. You probably didn't read it that way because you've looked at too many Hallmark cards. Seen too many Hallmark specials. And you've seen all these cute little naked baby cherubs. And that's to you an angel. These were angels, God's army the host, the Lord of hosts, the army of armies. And these angels are up and down, moving on the causeway, moving on the ramp to heaven. Jacob wakes up from his dream and goes, wow, I need to get me a real pillow. Because that was weird. But he also says, actually, I don't know if he said that part. I added that. He says, the Lord is in this place, and I didn't even know it. And because of this, I will call this place Bethel, which means holy, sacred place. House of the Lord is how it's translated. I will call this place Bethel. This is an important story for us to keep in mind, the backdrop to what we're going to read today. And for a bit, your brain is going to struggle trying to see the connection. And it's kind of like a detective story where it's not revealed to the very end how this connects to Genesis 28, the story I just told you about Jacob. But in this chapter, we're looking at the gospel of John, the first chapter In the Gospel of John, you may not recognize it, but it's the Christmas story. It's the Christmas story in disguise. It doesn't give you the facts of Christmas like Matthew and Luke do. It it gives you the meaning of Christmas. You know why we're having fights about keeping Christ in Christmas part of Christmas. And I want to read to you kind of an extended piece of Scripture, partly because it's good to hear Scripture And we need to immerse ourselves in it, but also because you need the context so we can feel and see and understand what John is telling us. In John chapter 1, verse 35, the next day, now Jesus, by the way, is not a baby at this point in time. He's grown up already, but this gets at the heart and meaning of Christmas. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, and for it was about the tenth hour, about four o'clock in the afternoon. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. It's not his last name, if you didn't know. It's a title. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now listen closely to Nathanael. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Oakland? I mean, Nazareth? I was going to say Yuma, but there's some folks here from Yuma. So, uh, Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, Did you catch the link to Genesis 28? You will see heaven open and you will see angels ascending and descending on what? The stairway to heaven. The ramp that extends from earth to heaven. He uses this strange phrase, son of man. He's borrowing this from Daniel, the prophet. But make no mistake. Jesus is claiming in this text to be the way to heaven. He is saying that he is the one that will open up heaven. And I must say that this is one of the most astounding claims in all of literature and perhaps even the entire Bible. You see, it would be interesting if Jesus said, I can show you the way to the gate to where the gate is, to where it is, to how to get to heaven. But he doesn't say that. He says, I am the way. I am the way. And you will see heaven open. Now, it's a strange story, this incident with Nathaniel. We have no clue, but it has. It doesn't smack of legend. It smacks of history. Did you catch where it said around the 10th hour, 4 o'clock in the afternoon? You never read that in legend, do you? And at about at 3:30, Hercules slayed you know the dragon. I mean, you don't read stuff like that. In histories you read, about four o'clock, that's when they met up with Jesus. It's history. And John is telling us something that happened. And they meet up with Nathaniel. and Nathaniel doesn't seem to have Nazareth in high regard. Did you catch that? <laughs> Can anything good? Come out of Nazareth. I had to make it culturally relative for us. You know, so you could feel a little bit what he felt. Because we all have those people and those places that we have a little disdain for. And he he sees Nazareth as a backwater, inbred, poor community. It's interesting because this whole story continues a theme that you may have heard running through the service today. Humble. Humility. You see what Jesus is ultimately displaying to us and what he is ultimately saying to us and what John is saying to us in this passage is that the heavens will be open for those who will be humble. The heavens will be open for those who will be humble. It's interesting. It starts with Jesus' humility. Think about it. Jesus came as a baby. That means at one point, the God of the universe was a single cell. The God of the universe was a single cell at one point in time. I mean, how mind blowing is that? How humbling is that? And he arrived and they put him in a. You guys know Silent Night, right? You know, away in a. There you go. They put him in a manger. Have you seen our manger out front? Can we go and stick somebody's baby in that thing? Come on, moms, let's try it out. What? My baby, my sweet baby. That was Jesus' crib. They hadn't, you know, they didn't have travel playpins and all that nonsense we have today. The Lord of the universe shut up in a manger, not in a luxury hotel. The heavens would be open through this humble servant. His humbling begins at his birth, begins as he's in this manger and it continues throughout his life he's a simple carpenter he he is a wandering preacher elsewhere he's asked where do you live and he says i don't have a house he's homeless he's even treated like he's crazy and out of his mind his mom and his brothers and sisters they show up and they're like please quit being weird And to that, he just counters with a really weird phrase. My mother and my brother and my sister are those who do the will of God. What? He was humbled in his death. Life itself died. And not gently, not peacefully in his sleep at a good old age. But violently horrific on a terrible, horrible afternoon. His blood and whipped and mocked and spit and punching and beard pulling and death. He was humbled in his death. And here we start to see the meaning of Christmas we start to understand the meaning of Christmas because what's the most powerful force on earth? What is it? You probably have several things running through your mind. You're thinking, oh man, you know, maybe a tornado or a hurricane or a volcano. I mean, those are incredibly powerful forces. But the reason those things are so powerful is because they could kill you. And death is the ultimately most powerful force on earth. Until Jesus came. You see, to us, death is the worst. It's the most horrific. It is the most to be feared. It is to be avoided at all costs. And Jesus comes, and he's 33 or so years old, and he welcomes death. He walks into his death. He willingly goes to his death. It tells us that the Son of Man laid down his life for his friend. Nobody takes my life, but I willfully lay it down for you. And he walks into death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself even to death on a cross. And in that experience, he brings about the death of death by his resurrection This is at the heart of the Christmas message. You're thinking, this sounds like Easter. You seem to be getting it confused. But this is why he came. This is why he's here. He came to confront and to destroy and to defeat the powers of evil. And one of those great horrific powers is the power of death. In order to defeat death, he had to become humble. He had to submit to death. He had to experience death. He had to make it look like death had won. And because he did that, you know what happens when you, if you know and follow Jesus Christ, do you know what happens to you if you die? You become better, you become glorious. You become wonderful. You become more powerful than you've ever been. You become what you were always meant to be, but were incapable in this body of sin and death. You are transformed. You are changed. You are taken and put into the presence of God. Death is not to be feared. Death is something, if you follow Jesus and know him, is something you can mock. Like the Apostle Paul. Oh, death, where? is your victory where is your sting but who gets this type of victory over death how is this accomplished how does this occur remember the heavens are open for those who will be humble you see you must be humble perhaps you saw an exchange recently it's kind of gone viral on the internet and uh It was an exchange that happened on The View. I don't watch The View. I just saw the video on YouTube. Uh, There's way too much estrogen on that show for my liking. (laughs) And uh, there's not enough tackling. Somebody needs to get tackled on that show occasionally. But this particular day, they were talking about a billboard that the atheists have put up. And the atheists have a picture of Santa, and he's, he's shushing somebody. And he says, "Shh, we won't tell. You can skip church this season. Just be good for goodness sake." And the message was debated on the view by these ladies, and one of the gals, she said, "Does this offend you? Do you find this offensive that the atheist would be telling folks, "Don't go to church?" And one of the girls I can't remember her name, but she was on the facts of life. and she's a follower of Jesus. And she said, it doesn't offend me. I think it's an opportunity to have a discussion because you have to define what is good and how good do you have to be? Do you have to be like Mother Teresa good or Bill Clinton good? I'm not making a judgment. I'm just asking the question, how good do you have to be? And it was a really good question. And another gal, she piped up and she's like, well, I think, you know, they shouldn't be telling us what to do. No religion should tell anybody what to do. We should just all be able to view what we want to do and see things the way we want to see it and come to our own conclusions. And everybody just needs to quit getting all bent out of shape and trying to convert everybody. Another gal said, you know, yeah, I mean, all the religions are teaching the same thing. The, the way to get to heaven is just to be good. And this passage doesn't teach that. This passage doesn't teach that the way to get to heaven is to be good. If you believe that, you are a Muslim. You didn't know it. You don't even dress the part. You don't go to mosque. But if you believe you get to heaven by being good, you ain't in the right place this morning. You get to heaven by following Jesus Christ. You get to heaven by being humble. And the first step of humility when it comes to Jesus is to acknowledge and recognize you are a sinner in need of salvation. Good people don't do that. People who are trusting in their goodness to get them to heaven wouldn't go, well, I, 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 I sin a little bit, but come on. It's more mistakes, really. In fact, one of the gals on the View, her and uh, Blair—I can't remember her name—but Blair from the Effects of Life—they uh, got into an exchange, and Blair was saying, "You know, well, what is goodness?" And the gals like, "I don't know. Maybe the Ten Commandments. Those would probably be a good thing. And I follow those. I don't kill anybody. I don't have uh, sex outside of marriage. I, 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 you know." And she's like, "Do you lie?" And she's like, "Well, I guess some, probably. Yeah. Well, then that's one of the ten. It is." I didn't know. I thought it was bigger ones than that. Well, I'm still good. I mean, I'm not a sinner. I, mean, I don't murder people and I don't sleep around. I, I just tell an occasional lie, like Santa Claus. Oh, never mind. I shouldn't bring that up. Some of you might be lying today about that. Anyways, we'll call it embellishing. We'll call it embellishing. How good is good enough? In this passage, Jesus is saying, if you stick with me, if you follow me, if you hang out with me, Nathaniel, you will see the heavens open up and the armies of heaven will descend and ascend on me. Because I am that ramp to heaven. I am that stairway to heaven. It's a fascinating, amazing claim. And it's right here at the beginning of the book of John. It's right out the gate. Some of the first words out of Jesus' mouth, if you look at the red words, it's some of the first ones. We have to be humble. We have to say, I'm a sinner in need of salvation. That's the first step to heaven is humility. You have to humble yourself before God. You have to admit you're a sinner. You have to also humble yourself before other people. You know, humbling yourself before God, that's probably not terribly hard because, you know, you're thinking, well, God's God, and I'm not, so that's, you know, he's he's kind of the big kahuna, and I'm nothing, so I'm good with humbling there. But you have to humble yourself before others to be able to get Jesus into your life. How do I know this? Because Joseph and his story, his story is a little irritating. I mean, the lessons in it. Do you remember his story? It's not told here in John, but it's told elsewhere. And it says, Joseph was a righteous man. Now, if the Bible calls you righteous, that's a good thing. I wish my name was in the Bible. And it says, now, Steve was a righteous man. Because I'd be like, awesome. <laughs> but it doesn't say anything about Steve being righteous in the Bible. He says, Joseph was a righteous man. And because he was a righteous man, he did not want to bring any shame or scandal upon Mary. So he decided quietly to divorce her. And then he had a dream. He had a pillow. It wasn't a rock. An angel appeared to him. Hey, buddy, take Mary as your wife. What's happened to her is from God you were given the name Jesus. Now here's this backwater carpenter in Nazareth who doesn't have two cents to rub together and he is supposed to take the pregnant teenage girl as his wife. And even in a backwoods community like Nazareth, this is going to put you on some of the lower rungs of the social ladder. And Joseph had to Humble himself to allow Jesus into his life. Joseph, he humbles himself, and because of this, he becomes the stepdad of Jesus, you know, God in the flesh. Imagine that. Poor James, who followed in Jesus' footsteps. James, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? Man, that would be a bummer. Because he humbled himself, because he lived the rest of his days with the label of, can you believe he married her after what went down? And can you believe he really thought it was from God what happened? Can you imagine all the talking in the coffee shops, the grocery, the hair salons, the school? For the rest of his days, he had to walk the path of humility to let Jesus in his life. You know, if you want to let Jesus into your life, there will come some moments of humility. And we, as a world, seem to be careening towards bigger and scarier and more confusing moments for the church and for those who follow Christ. And there may come a time in our lifetimes, in our kids' lifetimes, in our grandkids' lifetimes, where they may need to choose between life and death and their testimony and following of Jesus. And in that moment, they'll have to humble themselves. We'll have to humble ourselves before mankind. Because part of us wants to die with a machete or a knife or a gun in our hand and take a few of them out in the process. But we follow a man who didn't take up arms, he took up a cross. That's super irritating. That's super hard. That's super humbling. Finally, we'll have to go through these humbling experiences. Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master. And if the Lord of the universe would humble himself to the point of being a single cell at one moment, if the Lord of the universe would humble himself to need his diapers changed, If the Lord of the universe would humble himself to the point that he had to learn his, well, it wasn't ABCs, it was alphabet. The Lord of the universe had to learn how to tie his sandals, brush his teeth, learn a skill, watch dad become an apprentice, become a carpenter. The Lord of the universe had to memorize the Torah, The Lord of the universe had a brother, more than one, and some sisters. The Lord of the universe had peer pressure, perhaps acne. The Lord of the universe was one of us, is one of us. If that is what the Lord of the universe was willing to do for you and I, so he could bring about the death of death. If he was willing to walk those experiences of humiliation, trading the throne room of heaven, the best one that's ever been dreamt up, created, envisioned, left that for the cold. Manger. Just imagine what humiliating things we might have to go through. And if you think it's bad, it's not near as bad as what he went through for you and for me and for his namesake, for his glory. You see, the meaning of Christmas is that the heavens will be open for those who humble themselves. That can be your experience this Christmas season Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Confess your sins to Jesus Christ, to God, to the Holy Spirit. Follow Christ. And if this is true of you, then follow Christ. And no one or no thing else. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what amazing thing you have done. It just boggles my mind. and It is so fun to mull around and play with in our brains. The implications of the incarnation, just what you did, astounds us. May we just be filled with the awe and wonder of the Christmas season. Not because Santa and Rudolph and Frosty and trees and presents twinkly lights, and tinsel, but because the Lord of the universe became the baby Jesus. And he grew in wisdom and knowledge and stature with favor with God and with men, that he walked a walk of humility, that he went to Jerusalem and laid down his life for us, And then three days later, he took it back and walked out of a grave. And because of these actions, we too can have the hope that when death comes knocking, if we follow Christ, death can do its worst, but it'll only make us better. May we have a very Merry Christmas as we reflect on Christ in his incarnation this season. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May we be the best Christmas observers in town. May we make Christ known through all we think, all we say, all we do. May you have a Merry Christmas. Amen.